Good day. Buenas noches todos, Samsung. Hello. Thank you all for coming to this teaching from Independent Guahan. My name is Michael Luhan Bavakwa. You'll notice that this mic doesn't do anything in this room. This mic is for the live stream. So if you say, Timatotsutsoi, Mike, it's okay. Hopefully the mic is working on the live stream so that they can hear me a little bit better. Um, so uh, my name is Michael Luhan Bavakwa. I am a co-chair for the organization Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan is dedicated to educating the community about decolonization in general and then independence and its possibilities specifically and in particular. And so um, we have a number of different activities. We have a general assembly every month. Next general assembly is next Thursday um, at the Chmor village at 6 p.m. And we have events like this teach-ins where we talk about uh, different topics of interest to the community to elevate the discussion and the level of knowledge about things around our history and our political status. And so today we're talking about the Organic Act. The Organic Act. And part of this comes from uh, the fact that several years ago when Independent Guahan, we were first beginning our outreach, we had a big meeting with a number of the families connected to Pa'atautautano. And so they brought a bunch of their families and the kids and their dance groups to a meeting at the Barragata Community Center. It was, it was, it was probably 150 people uh, total, with majority of them being young children. So we talked to the parents and then we talked to the kids. And they invited the other task forces for statehood and free association, but they didn't come. And so when we were talking to the kids, we asked the kids, how many of you in class learn about the US Constitution? And everyone from elementary to middle to high school, they all raised their hands. And some of them yelled, Amen Second Amendment, guns. First Amendment, that's about talking, right? And then they, they talked about the ones that they knew, and they only knew a couple, but they knew them really well. And then we asked, how many of you know what the Organic Act is? And then a bunch of them went like this, and then went like that. And then maybe about five or six raised their hands kind of like this. And then eventually one of them thought about it for a second and realized that I wasn't talking about organic milk and then put his hand down. So only five out of close to 100 kids remembered learning about the Organic Act at all when they went to school. You may have had similar experiences where there was a heavy emphasis on learning about the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. government, but very little em emphasis on learning about the Organic Act or what connects us to the United States. And so this presentation is about that. We should understand what the Organic Act is. And so, let's turn off the front light. You guys can see? Okay. And so I apologize, I didn't, I didn't completely finish the PowerPoint, but I got most of it done. What is the Organic Act? This is the definition from the website Guampedia, which for some of you may has, has probably been essential in helping you finish your research papers. The Organic Act of Guam is federal legislation passed by the United States Congress and signed into law by Harry S. Truman in 1950. In general, the act established a non-military civil government on Guam, granted congressional U.S. citizenship to residents of the island at the time of their descendants, and solidified the island's political status as an unincorporated territory of the United States. So when we look at that definition, we can see that this is where U.S. citizenship comes from on Guam. We can see that this is key to our political status or lack of a political status. 
All right. And one of the main things that you should think about here is that the Organic Act is not a constitution. It's not a compact. It's not a convention. It's not an agreement. It is federal legislation. Right? So that means, so an important thing to remember for it is that it doesn't come from Guam. It's something passed for Guam by the US government. All right, and so how do we place it, this Organic Act, in Guam's past and present? How do we understand what it is? These are three ways of thinking about what the Organic Act is in Guam's history and its present day status. And I've uh, rated them in terms of likely sort of possibility, although all three are true. The first one is that the Organic Act is an important step in Guam's political development. It led to an improvement in status in some ways, an improvement in sort of the lives of people in some ways. And so we, we have to think of it as an important step. It's not the beginning, it's not the end, but it is a step. Number two, it is something that it formalizes US control over the island. So when we think about the Organic Act, we have to remember that part of why it's passed is that the US wanted to further legitimize its control over Guam. And number three, a sign of US benevolence or concern for the people of Guam. When the Organic Act was passed, there were US Congress people who said, you know what, the people of Guam died for us in World War II, we should help them out. And the, and the main person in the US House who sponsored the Organic Act said that we owe this to them. We promised them that we would, let do it, that we would give them a civilian government, let's give them a civilian government. So these are all three things to help you understand what the Organic Act is. And depending on how you rank them, it says a lot about your perspective on the island today. If you think that number three is the highest, well then you probably think that the island should stay the way it is now, right? Because you feel like the US takes care of us, like the US has always taken care of us. If you think number two is the most important, then you are probably a member of independent Guahan. And you think that the Organic Act is a colonial imposition, right? But in truth, it has elements of all, of all three of these things. All right, let's go back. I was not alive in 1944, regardless of how old some of my students think I am. I was not alive at that time. Although, Senor, Senor Perez, I know that you were there in 1944, not to call you out, <laughs> but war, war survivor. And so let's go back to this moment in Guam history and think about the Chamorro perspective in this moment. This is Hagatnya, destroyed. This is the Plaza de España, the kiosco, destroyed by the war. The lives of Chamorros, shattered by the war. A lot of suffering from the Japanese occupation, a lot of difficulty, hardship rebuilding the island. This was the status of Chamorros on Guam in 1944. Uh, excuse me, in 1944 and after World War II. They were not US citizens. They were US nationals. They did not have any representation in the US federal government. They elected advisory only legislative representatives. So there was a Guam Congress, there was two houses in it, they elected leaders into it, but they were largely advisory. They couldn't actually pass laws. There was a military government that ruled over Guam. The, the US Congress had absolute right and authority over Guam. 
and there was no independent court system. The court system on Guam was basically an extension of the U.S. military. And so, as you can see, Chamorros had almost no rights whatsoever. They had not a lot of possibilities in terms of serving their island politically, making decisions over what was going to happen to their island. Chamorros were in kind of a bad place. But after World War II, there was a move for Chamorros to gain citizenship. Chamorros had pushed before World War II. They had sent petitions to the U.S. Congress. They had sent two representatives in 1936, B.J. Berdalio and F.B. Leon Guerrero. Anyone here go to F.B. Leon Guerrero? Biba. Biba Zigo. <laughs> F.B. Leon Guerrero, that guy's a badass. That guy's a badass. Uh, what's it called? Suspected communist. The U.S. Navy tried to throw him in prison and they had him watched because, because he was so, he spoke out against the U.S. So often they thought he must be a communist. And so, but Chamorro's pushed for citizenship. They were thinking, they were thinking, we need to improve our position. We need to improve our lot in life. We need to have some way of getting rights, some way of having some control over our island. And the thinking was that if we, are we were loyal and patriotic in World War II, if we continue to do that, then the U.S. will reward us. They might give us some of that democracy they're always talking about. They might give us some of that freedom that they always say they're defending. And so the Organic Act comes after that period. But... It, and this is the, sorry, the signing of the Organic Act, of course. And uh, you will notice there's a lot of dudes there. This is the only Chamorro that was there. Carlos Taitano, uh, former speaker of the Guam legislature, former member of the, the Guam Congress after World War II. And the only reason he's, he is there is because he heard about this being signed. This was to be signed with no representative of Guam at all present. But Carlos Taitano was going to school at Georgetown University in, in, uh, when this was signed, and he heard about this, so he took a cab down to the White House, and he tried to get in, and, and then at first they told him, no, you can't, what, are you kidding me? And so, and then he's like, I'm from Guam. And they're like, oh, you're from Guam? I think they're signing something about Guam. Hey, that, we should let him in, be good for the photo. And so they let him in, and then they, and just to tell you, not saying anything about sort of racial stereotypes, he is the sexiest person in the room. <laughs> Carlos Taitano, Guidze mas bonito nalahi. It's a lot of, a lot of unattractive men in that picture. Carlos Taitano wins the day. And so just, just to let you know, because, um, but so it gives you a sense of the organic act and its weight. It was not something that the Chamorro people even necessarily knew a lot about. It was something where the U.S. was going to sign it, and they weren't even going to invite anybody from Guam to represent or to attend. The only reason he's there is because he heard about it, and he was able to get down. Why was the Organic Act passed? These are four reasons why, and we're going to go through them because it's important because all of these reasons are still relevant today. Number one, local pressure. Number two, national pressure. Number three, international pressure. And number four, there was a desire to formalize control over an island that was an increasingly important strategic asset. So let's go through these one by one. Post-war land takings. And so you see Tuman Bay over here. Tuman was 
a vibrant farming and fishing area uh, up until World War II, and then the U.S. Navy made the decision to evict almost all of the families to turn it into a recreational beach uh, for servicemen. And so, my lahal, my lahal. Recreational beach for servicemen. And so this was a time when the Chamorro's feelings for the United States were tested. They had been loyal to the U.S. during World War II, and they welcomed Uncle Sam back with open arms and even a song about how much they hoped that he would come back. And Uncle Sam promptly started to take Chamorro lands. And this is an image of a woman who is receiving a check for her land. Note how excited she is. Note how this woman is like, oh yeah, I'm going to move to Las Vegas, where all the rest of the Chamorros went. No, she doesn't seem happy. She does not seem happy, but this naval governor at that time is talking about how they're treating the people of Guam really good. But in truth, thousands of Chamorros lost their land, and in many cases received very little compensation for their land. And... Um, and so it was in this climate that Chamorros were starting to get upset. Because as one Chamorro said, there is not a single piece of property on this island that Chamorros feel is safe from the bulldozers of the United States. Because the US Navy was literally going around the island and if they liked a spot, they would evict the families from that spot and then come in and bulldoze their farms. Make them sign on the spot, eminent Devane, your land is ours. So Carlos Titano again, I don't know about his glasses, no. anyways, but uh, Carlos Titano here, he was in the Guam Congress, and he and other Chamorro leaders at that time were debating, what are we supposed to do? The U.S. is treating us like crap. They're not respecting us. They're taking our lands. They were setting it up so that U.S. Navy men and Marines who left the service were getting sweet contracts to run the utilities on the island. And there was all of this Navy corruption, all this U.S. military corruption on the island, and Chamorros tried to investigate it in the Congress, and they were told that they weren't allowed to subpoena people, to ask them questions. And so Carlos Titano said what many felt at that time. They said, we are outside the family now. How can we demand our rights if we do not belong? We have not the right until we have been guaranteed, granted citizenship after you belong, then you can demand your rights. So Chamorros had this feeling, if we can get citizenship, then the U.S. will respect us. Then they won't steal our lands. Then they will treat us better. And so there was a walkout, the Guam Congress walkout. I wish that we uh, knew more about it. I wish that we did more to commemorate it. It happened in 1949, and this is from an interview with Antonio Gotga Cruz, who was one of the people who walked out as part of that. And so he says that morning there was heated debate about these issues, they were discussing what to do, and then right then and there they decided to walk out until such a time that the governor would allow them to subpoena people so that they could conduct investigations into corruption and abuse in Guam. So they walked out at 10 o'clock in the morning. The governor called for a special session, called them and ordered them to come back, but they refused to answer. Although I was expected to be arrested, he said, nothing happened. He says that we got 100% support from the people of Guam. They told us if you go to jail, we all go to jail with you. So the members of one of the houses in the Guam Congress walk out and they refuse to return until 
There is a civilian government on the island until they are finally treated with some respect. Okay, now, so that's one of the things, the local pressure. Another issue is national pressure. Now, it's interesting because when we look back in history, we sometimes think that nowadays, this is the only time that Chamorros or people on Guam complain about things like the U.S. military. That's not true. In the U.S. post-war Senate hearings, they, would, they investigated the conduct of the U.S. military in the Pacific, and they found gross, uh, gross problems in how the U.S. military conducted themselves on Guam. So in these Senate hearings, uh, the U.S. senators asked if the lands that were taken from the Chamorro people by the U.S. military were taken legally, and members of the U.S. Marine Corps said, Guam is American territory. And when we landed on the island, the people were scattered, and we took what we needed, occupied it, built up the roads and so forth, irrespective of ownership. Adding, I wouldn't say that the land was taken legally, but everything is legal in a time of war. So huge numbers of property were taken during wartime. Families never compensated properly for them. And then even after the war ended, the military continued to condemn properties. And so even in the US, people were becoming aware of the military treating the people on Guam very poorly. There was a, the US government sent a committee to investigate things in Guam and in American Samoa. There was the Hopkins Committee and the Hopkins Report. And here, how many of you went to Simon Sanchez High School? Yeah, what? There's only two northern people? Are you guys embarrassed to say you're from Jigo or something? Wait, I thought people are embarrassed to say they're from Zotnia now. But I'm just kidding. Zotnia rules. Zotnia rules. Zotnia rules. That's Simon Sanchez testifying to the Hopkins Committee. And so that's who your school is named after. And so they visited Guam and they collected evidence. And the Chamorro people came out and basically said they don't feel like the military is treating them well. They don't understand why America is treating them like this. And so this report goes back. And in the federal government, they realize we got to do something about this. So one thing that really helped, though, was that there were allies in the United States. Um, the Institute of Ethnic Affairs was a nonprofit which was about uh, fostering positive relationships between the white population in the US and the non-white population in the US. And so they were very liberal for the time, and they took up the cause of Guam because one of their members uh, was Laura Thompson, who wrote the book, Guam and Its People, and her husband was in charge of that, and they decided that the Navy was abusing the Chamorro people, and they made it like a mission for several years to get the Navy to stop ruling Guam. And so this is a book that talks about their efforts. They wrote letters to the editor of newspapers across the United States. They wrote uh, articles for newspapers. They connected with people, told people Guam's story. And in 1949, there was a huge number of, of pieces in the newspaper about the Guam Congress walkout and about how the Navy was treating Chamorros badly. This is the 1949 equivalent of going viral is that at that time, newspapers all over were covering, and they were covering it in Guam ways. I love that Guam's Boston Tea Party. That's, that's funny, because all they did is walk out of a room. <laughs> they didn't throw tea into the ocean, but it was a big symbolic moment, and when the media played it up, 
they made it sort of this issue of these people that had been loyal to the U.S. during World War II, and now the military was taking advantage of them, and it captured some interest across the United States. So that's national pressure, local pressure, national pressure, but international pressure is also something we oftentimes forget. The United States was one of the few countries, and some historians say it's the only country, that came out of World War II with more territory than when the war started. Most countries lost territory in a variety of ways, but the United States gained huge amounts of new territory, including Micronesia. And so when the US, when the, the United Nations was formed after World War II, the US was thought to be the center, the central force of it. Um, and so one thing that they thought is that no one would challenge then their territories. But what happened was that a list of NSGTs, non-self-governing territories, was created at the United Nations. And initially, the United States refused to put its territories on that list. But through international pressure from other countries, um, this was sort of before the Cold War, but you can see the seeds of the Cold War in this, other countries condemned the U.S. for still trying to be a colonizer in a world when colonies weren't supposed to be existing anymore. And so the U.S. reluctantly put Guam on the list of non-self-governing territories. And so that's another issue, too, is that international pressure compelled the U.S. to change its policy on Guam. All of this, though, so... And so because of this, because of the Organic Act being signed, Guam becomes an organized, unincorporated territory. So unincorporated territory is not something you find in the Constitution. It's a legal term of art that is created through the insular cases to refer to territories the U.S. has that it probably doesn't want to actually make a part of the United States, but that has populations. It tried to create this distinction so it could hold on to property territory, but not owe the people there anything, right? Because when you see an American flag flying over land, does that mean that the U.S. Constitution applies to the land beneath it? You might think, yes, wherever the American flag flies, the symbols, the principles, the values of the United States should reign. Not true. Unincorporated territory means that this flag represents whatever the U.S. Congress decided, decides it represents. So if the U.S. Congress wants to withhold rights, it can. If it wants to withhold things or treat Guam or other territories in unconstitutional ways, it can. So the Organic Act, in another way, created this status for Guam, which formalized the unincorporated position of Guam. Giving Guam U.S. citizen, giving people in Guam U.S. citizenship, and creating a new sort of legal framework for Guam to be attached to the United States. But one big issue as to why the Organic Act was passed is because of a map like this. So all of the shaded areas are lands that were taken by the U.S. military after World War II, and then kept and held on to even after the Organic Act was passed. And so the U.S. had taken almost two-thirds 
of the island. After World War II, they had returned a number of properties to the government of Guam, but they had held on to all of this. And the Organic Act provided a means for legitimizing the taking of those lands. We, mentioned, we heard earlier in the U.S. Senate in their hearings that people had called into question whether the taking of lands on Guam were legal because the U.S. military had said they had taken it from, uh, through the eminent domain clause. But you can't do that to non-citizens, and you can't do that in foreign territory. You have to have a legal means to take it. So what the U.S. did is the lands that they had taken that they wanted to hold on to, the day before the Organic Act was passed, they redeeded them. And then the Organic Act legitimized all of the land takings that they wanted to hold on to. So we have to think about it in these ways. There was benevolence, sure, wanting to help out the Chamorro people. There was a lot of pressure from a lot of sectors. But also at the heart of it was a desire to hold on to Guam. And so this is uh, the late Ricky Berdalio. And so he lived an interesting life. And in the 80s, towards the end of his life, he said that he felt that the Organic Act was not a good thing for Guam. It was, a sad, it was sad for the people of Guam when the Organic Act was signed. The Organic Act is not designed to enhance the dignity of the indigenous people. It was designed to enhance the colonial authority of the United States. And so we have to remember that, is that the Organic Act can benefit you, but it can also take advantage of you, right? It can. So the, organ the Organic Act could improve the situation of people on Guam, but it could also be used to reassert control over them in other ways. So one of the things, this is a picture from the, the Fanogi March for Tomorrow Self-Determination. I know some of you were there. And so I like that sign, I make my own decisions. And then no more chains. And so the question that we have to think about for the Organic Act is, is the Organic Act a document of self-governance? Through the Organic Act, does Guam get to self-govern? Because self-governance is at the core of decolonization. You say, you're, you say that you're decolonized when you have achieved a level of genuine self-governance, that you have the ability to dictate your own affairs or, as an independent country, or you are fully equal with the, with the country that you are incorporated in. But that issue of self-governance, Self-governance, and that's one thing that we want to think about as we look to the Organic Act after World War II. So this is the Organic Act today, and it can contrast with the state of the Chamorro people in 1944. Now, people on Guam have American citizenship. There is a civilian government on the island of Guam. However, there is still no federal voting rights or representation. There is a locally elected le governor and legislature. There is a local judiciary. Basic rights slash privileges are afforded to Guam residents. All rights and powers in Guam stem from Congress and no other source. Now, this one here, you'll note it says rights slash, slash privileges. And the reason it says that is because the federal government and the courts have argued that if you live in a territory, you do not have rights as Americans. You have privileges because the Constitution only applies to the territories as much as the Congress allows it to, 
if you get things in the territories, it's because Congress gave you the privilege of getting it. But as long as you live in a territory, you don't have the right, even if you, even if you come from the United States itself and just live there. And there's a case that was decided in, the, in one of the district, in one of the circuit courts, um, Segovia, in which they said, because people from the states who are living on Guam and in the military argued that they should still be allowed to vote for president, even if they live in a territory. And the court said, as long as you live in a territory, you receive privileges and Congress can deny you those things. If you live in a state, you can assert your rights. If you live in a territory, it's up to the will of Congress what you can and cannot have. And so this is something that we have to remember. We feel that we are very connected to America in lots of ways, right? You can follow American media. You can watch the same things that people in America watch. There's American flags everywhere. It feels very American. But the way we live is very different, even if you don't notice it. So we have the government of Guam, right? The Ninth Circuit Federal Court has ruled that the, govern of, the government of Guam is not a real government. It's not like the federal government, and it's not like a state government. But because of how it's born from a, an act of Congress, they say that since Guam is an unincorporated territory, enjoying only such powers as may be delegated to it by Congress, the government of Guam is in essence an instrumentality of the U.S. federal government. So instrumentality, that sounds funny. Although, I guess if you're into ev Evangelion, then you're familiar with the word instrumentality because it is used in that, just to let you know. But um, what they mean there, what the, the metaphor that they used is that Guam's government is not like California's government. It's not like Arkansas's government. It's not even like Hawaii's government. Guam's government is like an office in the Department of Interior in Washington, D.C. And because of that, the U.S. Congress can choose to close that office whenever they want. The U.S. Congress can't close a state government. They can't shut it down. But because the government of Guam only exists because of federal legislation, therefore, Guam has no standing to act as a government if the U.S. Congress decides that it's not a government. Now, every day, you know, we may not notice this, but there are certain ways in which you can and so one of the things to consider here, though, is that we live post-1970. So really, the post-war history in Guam is a tale of two organic decks, from 1950 to 1970, and then 1970 up until today. And so these are pictures of Carlos Camacho, who was the father of Felix Camacho. He was the last appointed governor of Guam and he was the first elected governor of Guam. So this is from 1969, meeting Richard Nixon when he visited Guam, and this is when he was appointed by the president, because originally in the Organic Act, our governors were appointed by the president. In 1970, though, and so here's Carlos Camacho with Yokoi. You guys remember Yokoi? You guys been to his cave? So there he's taking a picture with Yokoi, and that is after he had been elected because in 1970, Guam was finally allowed to elect a governor. And so this is a big shift. And it helps us understand sort of the Organic Act and its original purpose and uh, some of the potential problems with it. So from 1950 to 1970, 
the governor of the island was appointed by the U.S. president. Um, this is Carlton Skinner. He was the first civilian governor on the island. This is Manny Guerrero, who was one of the Chamorros, who was appointed governor. Um, if you guys remember in Hagatnya, next to the Plaza de España, there used to be a really scary, old, decrepit building that GovGuam had offices in. That was his building, and then they tore it down. Poor guy. It was the Manny Guerrero building. But so, appointed governors. They served at the pleasure of the president. And in fact, um, one of them, Governor Elvidge, it's funny, because he was appointed the governor of Guam um, by Dwight Eisenhower, even though he did not know what Guam was or where it was on a map. So when Governor Elvidge got the call, he was a lawyer in Seattle, but he was connected to the Republican Party. When he got the call saying, are you interested in being the governor of Guam? Ford Elvidge said, hold on a second. And then he yelled at his son, hey, do you know what Guam is? And then his son was like, I think I heard of it. And then he said, hold on, we got to call you back. Is there a map around here? And then they found a map. And then they looked at it, and they're like, oh, this is Guam. It's an island in the Pacific. And then the son was like, Dad, you should go for it. Sounds like fun. And he's like, all right, fine. So he called them back and said, yeah, I'll be governor. And he was the governor for a couple of years, Fort Elvidge. And so he, he, uh, he wrote that anecdote down, anecdote down, by the way. He thought it was cute. Um, so at that time, some of the governors were very engaged. Some of the governors knew, like Manny Guerrero, they knew about the island. A couple of them didn't know much about Guam, didn't do much for the island while they were here. But so this is one thing we have to remember. And, and I frame this in terms when we talk about government, like let's say corruption, right? Many people here feel that Guam's government is corrupt. It's inept. It's incompetent. It's got all these problems, right? And then so we think, well, it must be because of us that it has all these problems. They say it's our culture, right? It's the Pari system. You know, when, when somebody does this, it's, it's because this is our way. But actually, if you look at the Organic Act, the Organic Act is set up in a certain way that actually it has a lot of inherent flaws in it. So this is the first Guam legislature. Now, one of the things uh, that was originally in the Organic Act was called the Veto Override Presidential Resolution. So you may be familiar with this. If the Guam legislature passes something, it gets sent to the governor, right? The governor has two options. What can the governor do? The governor can sign it or the governor can veto it, right, and send it back. The legislature then has the option of overriding the veto if they have enough support. If they can get two-thirds to support it, they can override it over the governor's veto. That's how it works, right? Except in the original Organic Act, there was a third option, which meant if the governor got overridden, he had the option of sending the bill to the U.S. president, who had the final say over laws on Guam. And it happened four times, where the legislature didn't like what the governor had done, and the governor sent it to the president, and the president agreed with the governor, and the legislature was completely overturned. Now, one of the reasons why this is important is because the intent of the Organic Act originally was to give the governor far more power than anything else on the island. And the reason that they did that is because the governor was the federal appointee on the island. The legislature was the local representatives of the people, but the governor was the president's person, the federal representative on the island. 
Which is why, as Robert Rogers writes in Destiny's Landfall, <clears throat> the governor, Guam's governor has broad powers over education, medicine, law enforcement, and other public services on, on the island more directly than is in normal practice in American state governments. Furthermore, the Congress, when they, when they made the Organic Act, they made it so it has a strong executive branch, but they placed limits on the legislative branch so that the legislative branch elected by the people would always be weaker than the executive branch. So, for example, the Organic Act created a one-house legislature, and they said, you know, Guam's small. It doesn't need a double house, a bicameral legislature. But, but if you look at the United States, there's only one state in all the United States that has a unicameral or single house legislature. Everybody else has bicameral because that's part of the American democratic tradition, is that to empower the legislative branch, you give it two houses. You give it a broader swath of representation of the people and greater abilities. But when the Organic Act was made, it was designed so that the legislature would be weaker than the governor. So when we talk about sort of governors doing things that they shouldn't be doing, having engaging in corrupt practices and messing with this or that, you could blame the governor, but you also have to blame the system because the system was designed so that the governor can do that. That's what America gave us. So you can definitely blame people as being corrupt, but you also have to acknowledge that America gave us a system which is meant to be corrupt in favor of whoever's in charge. And we didn't choose that. We didn't choose that. So I'll give you another example. So in 1970, though, a lot of those things changed. So the veto override presidential resolution went away when Guam started to elect their, elect their chief executives. But this is another example. So when we talk about, is the Organic Act a document tied to Guam's self-governance? Is self-governance that we get to sort of do things locally? Is self-governance about having control over sort of your society? Sort of the road to judicial empowerment shows one of those problems with the Organic Act. What are the three branches of government? Again, who can tell me? Denancy, how very good. But you want to know what's funny? In the Organic Act, it says that this will be a model based on the American idea of separation, uh, excuse me, of checks and balances and the three branches of government. Except in the original Organic Act, there's only two and a half branches of government. There was no judicial branch. The judicial branch was, made, was put at the mercy of the legislature, interestingly enough. So they didn't outline what the judicial branch is supposed to be like. And so for many decades, Guam's judicial system was very chaotic because the federal, the federal, the federal court had a lot of power in Guam um, and there was no local judge system to kind, of, to kind of match that power. And so eventually what happened is in the 70s, the legislature created a Supreme Court for Guam. There was already like a superior court, but they wanted to create a Supreme Court, which would be the local sort of appellate, local appeals court. But they got shot down. The U.S. government sued the government of Guam, telling them that they did not have the right to create a judicial system. 
it's kind of messed up. They didn't have a Supreme Court on Guam, so they wanted to create one. And the federal government said, no, you cannot. And the Supreme Court decided against Guam. And so the Supreme Court that Guam had created was abolished. And the Supreme Court argued that you don't have the ability to do that. If you want that, Congress has to do it for you. You don't have the ability to amend the Organic Act. You don't have the ability to add to the Organic Act or take things out. Congress controls the Organic Act. So we always have to remember that. It's not a constitution. A constitution is something that the people have the ability to add, to take away from. But the Organic Act is something the US Congress controls. And so over the years, Congress has changed the Organic Act, usually when Guam asks for it. So, so years later, the US Congress gave Guam an independent judiciary, and it has it now. But even something like in the past, the, in the Organic Act, the position of the Attorney General on Guam was initially appointed by the governor, but then when Guam wanted to make it independent and elected by the people, it couldn't do that on its own. The U.S. Congress has to do it for them because Guam doesn't have the ability to make those choices about its, its society and its government. This is one of the interesting things about the Organic Act, a paradox of the Organic Act is that on the one hand, the US argues that you are self-governing because you have the Organic Act, because you have the ability to pass local laws, because you have the ability to elect your leaders, you are therefore self-governing, you're not a colony. But at the same time, the US government argues, or this US government uses the Organic Act to consolidate control over Guam and to sort of, uh, deny things like self-determination and decolonization. And so that's kind of the paradox of it, is that the Organic Act is used to say that Guam is not a colony, while the Organic Act is used to, to enhance the colonial status of Guam. And so, okay, let's talk about political status in the Organic Act. I don't know if any of you here are statehood supporters or would like Guam to be like the 51st or the 52nd state. But when the Organic Act was being discussed and debated in the U.S. Congress, statehood was very much on the congressmen's minds, and they were very, very against Guam ever becoming a state. And so in the debates, Congressman Brown from Ohio, who was one of the main, who was one of the main uh, promoters of the Organic Act, he had to argue on the floor against people who were saying, that the Organic Act was dangerous because the people on Guam might assume that we're promising that they're gonna get to be part of America one day. And so people were worried. Are you saying that, could they come back later and say you gave us the Organic Act, so now we wanna become a state? And Congressman Brown and his co-sponsor, Congressman Peterson from Florida, had to repeat, repeatedly tell everyone, no, there's no guarantee. This does not mean they ever get to become a state. And it does not guarantee that they'll ever become a part of the United States. It's an interesting sort of discussion because they wanted to give Guam a civilian government, but it was clear that they also wanted to keep Guam at a distance from the United States. So this is one of the things that's problematic about the Organic Act is that it is designed to not deal with Guam's political status. It is designed to keep Guam an unincorporated territory. 
rather than sort of push it towards inclusion in the United States or push it towards more autonomy and possibly independence. But man, when I read those debates, dude, these guys were like, no, 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 it doesn't mean statehood. Are you sure? What if they come back later and they want to become a state? No, 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 it's no promise. We'll make it very clear. We'll make it very clear in the legislation that they don't get to be a state. And they're like, well, you know, what if they say Alaska and Hawaii get to be states? And we'll make it clear that Guam is different than Alaska and Hawaii. Very fascinating. So this is from a cartoon from the, uh, a newspaper in the 60s called the Guam Times Weekly. And so remember that Carlos Titano had thought and he had argued that once Chamorros and once people on Guam are U.S. citizens, then everything will be easier. Everything will be better because then they'll have to treat Guam with respect. But as we can see from this cartoon and from what's happened since, that's not the case. So this cartoon is meant to represent the territories of the United States. Here's Puerto Rico. This is supposed to be Guam. Little, little naked Guajutautano guy right there. This is supposed to be the Virgin Islands, and this is American Samoa. And so all of the states are here with their big feast from Uncle Sam, and then the territories get their own mini table off to the side. And so what post-war Guam leaders learned is that the Organic Act didn't actually guarantee them respect. It didn't guarantee them more from the United States. It actually it improved their situation in some ways, but it still led, it still left a lot of issues open. War reparations, land compensation, lack of oversight or engagement over military affairs, lack of control over immigration and the economy, lack of federal representation, inability to participate in, in diplomacy and international agreements slash organizations, political status, tomorrow rights, imbalance between branches of government, federal regulations that hinder local industry. There was all sorts of things that they found that just because they're U.S. citizens, it doesn't mean they have any power to improve these things or affect these things. And so one of the things that, that's interesting is nowadays we think that protesting the U.S. military or being critical of the U.S. military presence, it's a new thing. But no, leaders on Guam were always critical of the U.S. military presence because they didn't. there was this huge presence on the island that they didn't have any ability to control. And so even up until today, if a strike force is moved in, the strike force can be taken out. If this unit is moved in, it can be taken out. And it can benefit the economy, and then it can disappear. And so even during this time, they found that the U.S. would, would pull troops out from Guam, and they wouldn't tell. And then if your economy relied on those troops being here, suddenly you lost all that. But they wouldn't even so much as inform people, oh yeah, this unit's moving out. These people won't be here anymore. These people are gone. And so the, even something like that, people in the 60s and the 70s were upset because they couldn't effectively manage Guam's affairs because there was this huge thing, the military presence, that they didn't have basic ability to influence. This led to the Guam Constitutional Convention. The Guam Constitutional Convention, the first one, and so this was, if you've ever heard of the Guam Constitutional Conventions, the first one was very weird because the legislature passed a law saying that there was going to be a constitutional convention, but they weren't sure if they were legally allowed to have a constitutional convention because they were talking about a constitution, but 
could they make their own constitution or did they have to ask the U.S.'s permission to make a constitution? And so here we've got, good though, we've got all these leaders, Frank Lujan, my uncle David, Tony Palomo, former governor Ada, that looks like Dono, that looks like Adrian Sanchez. And so all of these guys met in rooms, talked to the people, and then at the end of the convention they said, you know what, we don't actually have the authority as a territory to make a constitution. Congress has to tell us it's okay. Because, and so nothing came out of that. They came, up with, um, they came up with things to amend the Organic Act. They came up with improvements to the Organic Act because they felt like as a territory, we don't have this ability to take that next step. But Guam was upset because even around Guam and Micronesia, all of the other islands in the Trust Territory were getting to negotiate for their future. So you had the, Mar the Northern Marianas Islands sitting and negotiating with the U.S. State Department. You had Yap. Palau, the Marshall Islands, sitting and negotiating with the U.S. State Department, and Guam was left out of all of that, not able to sit across from the United States and talk about what they wanted for the future in terms of political status. So then we have the second constitutional convention, and the second constitutional convention comes about because the U.S. Congress enables it. So the U.S. Congress passes legislation which allows Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands to draft constitutions. They have to submit it to Congress and the federal government for approval, but it tells them that you go ahead and you can draft your constitutions. And so there is a convention. Carl Gutierrez, who's here, uh, was, was the president of that convention. Um, and so this is the draft of the constitution that they're presenting to Jimmy Carter. Now, the Constitution failed, though. The U.S. government was okay with the Constitution, but the people on Guam voted it down by a huge majority. An overwhelming majority of people said no to the Constitution. And so, one of the reasons why, though, is it's the same reasons why the Organic Act is problematic. These were the limits that were placed on the people of Guam in writing a constitution. Number one, so the federal legislation said, number one, you can write a constitution, but it must follow the format and spirit of the U.S. Constitution in terms of the type of government and the distribution of power. That means three branches of government. You couldn't have a fourth branch of government. You couldn't only have two branches of government. It had to be three. And there was exclusions. You couldn't have traditional government. You couldn't have tribal government. You couldn't have anything like that. It had to look exactly the way the U.S. government looks. The Constitution could not be used to mitigate or interfere with existing federal legislation or rules. So you couldn't put anything in your Constitution which, which might give you power or ability in, in influencing or limiting federal legislation, existing federal law. So you couldn't do anything. If you didn't like federal laws, your constitution had to conform to all of them. You couldn't use it to protect yourself from certain federal laws. And number two, the constitution had to recognize that Guam has no sovereignty, but that all sovereignty comes from U.S. control of the island.
So you couldn't argue that Guam has sovereignty because of the Chamorro people. You couldn't argue that Guam has sovereignty because it's a colony and it deserves self-determination. You had to recognize that your existence is because of the United States. And so when people looked at this, they didn't really like it because it, whatever you created would be just like the Organic Act. It would be an expression of the US Congress, the US federal government. It wouldn't be what the people wanted. And so looking to today, because oftentimes the issue of the US constitu or a constitution for Guam comes up nowadays. People say we should just uh, take the Organic Act and make it our constitution. Or we should draft a constitution right now because the US gave us the right to um, in federal legislation. But one of the problems with drafting a constitution when you are an unincorporated territory is see, so these are three things of community interest in Guam. Can you guess what they are? You guys know? Can you guess? What's this one? Oh, this is the easiest one, right? This is about cockfighting. Cockfighting, right? Because you just have a couple more months until you're not allowed to cockfight on Guam anymore. So get your birds dead now. Get your salape now, because in a couple months, the federal ban goes into effect, or the federal revocation of Guam's exception, to be clear. So cockfighting, for some people on Guam, a very important cultural thing. Um, it's part of the economy on Guam. How about this one? What's that? Hungan, what's a big federal thing that affects all of us and all the things we're wearing and using right now? What's that? Yeah, but what affects the Jones Act, right? So the Jones Act is a big thing that we don't discuss on Guam, but it is something that may potentially inflate the prices of everything we use. So if there was no Jones Act, things on Guam could cost, depending on which study you read, they could cost 30% less, 50% less. So you think stuff on Guam is expensive. The Jones Act is part of that problem. All right, and how about this one? Or military, so having, a, having military bases. So these are all three things which are of important community interest, right? So a cultural practice that the federal government says you can't have anymore. Economic laws which affect our cost of living. And then something which affects the land, uh, the environment, and also may bring possible threats from, from neighbors in the region. So all of these are very important things. You could not do anything in the Constitution to affect any of these things. Your Constitution couldn't protect cockfighting. Your Constitution couldn't ensure that the people of Guam get goods at the best possible price. Your Constitution couldn't allow you to have more control over what the military does in Guam. So it makes you wonder, what is the point of a Constitution as an unincorporated territory? If it doesn't allow you to talk about what you're worried about and talk about what you want to see for your island, if it's just supposed to be a stamp of whatever the United States has. So this is one reason why the Constitution failed, is because people thought that it would simply be just a continuation of what we have now, and it wouldn't lead to anything new and anything different. Yes, I had a challenge to quote from the Bible in this presentation, and I did it. So, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. 
This is the King James Version, by the way. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which hath built, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Okay, why have I quoted the, the parable of the foolish man and the wise man? Anyone have any ideas? It could be. It could be. Anyone? Think about it. What is the, what the base idea here, right, is that you should build upon that which is strong and secure as opposed to that which is weak and can change at any moment, right? And so the wise man will build upon something which has some grounding, some sovereign force, versus the foolish man who will build upon the sands which can change at any moment, and so I bring this up, though, because when we think about the organic duct, we have to be careful because the organic duct is not a rock. It is, a, it is sands. They are the sands of Congress. And they can shift and they can change with the mood of the Congress. And so one reason why the future of the organic duct, moving towards political status change and decolonization versus the, just the passing of a constitution, is because you want to get to a point where your status is like a rock where it's secure, where you can say, we want to be part of the United States. We want to be independent from the United States. We want to be freely associated with the United States. Moving in that direction will mean that whatever you produce as part of that will have more security than if you just decide to build on the Organic Act today. And so one of the reasons why sort of people asked for a conversation or a teaching about this is because the current uh, delegate in Congress is proposing a number of amendments to the Organic Act. And so he is arguing he has submitted one already. He is submitting uh, an amendment to the Organic, he has submitted an amendment to the Organic Act that any time there is to be um, a bond borrowing of over $25 million or a tax increase on the island, there has to be a public referendum to approve it. He is also proposing to, um, to federalize tax refunds payments. So put it into the Organic Act that when you, that, that sort of the federal government will dictate control over tax refunds to make sure that people get them quicker. He's also mulled over some other potential changes to the Organic Act. And so, um, yeah, I just want to, so one of the, and you'll note here in this article, it says that Underwood and the governor say that what the congressman is proposing is a step backwards. Now, there's different ways to approach this issue, right? We can see that the delegate is simply trying to improve things on the island, right? He says people don't get their tax refunds quickly enough. Let's get the federal government involved to force the government to, to give the money back to the people faster, right? Or um, the government can increase taxes on people. Let's get, the federal government, let's get the federal government involved to require this for tax increases. 
So he's offering solutions to problems. But what the governor and former delegate Underwood are talking about, though, when they say step backwards, is that when the Organic Act has been amended in this, in this history that we've been talking about today, it has always been amended in such a way so that the federal government gives up power to the people of Guam, not that the people of Guam give power to the federal government. And so we have to think about this proposal with that history involved, is that, um, yeah, and then think about is the Organic Act the place in which to solve these problems you should put your solutions, right? All right. Sidus Masin.